If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Luke. Thank you, brother. Luke chapter 1. This morning, we're going to be continuing the series we started last week, looking at the, the four songs of praise that are sung surrounding the birth of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Zacharias's Benedictus, and this week, we're going to look at Mary's Magnificat. This morning, so the, the Mary's actual song of praise that we're going to read is in verses 46 to verse 45, but we're, we're really kind of going to do a survey beginning in verse 26 going to verse 55, but then just kind of honing in on Mary's song specifically. So Luke chapter 1, verse 46. If you're there, say there. I need to. All right. <laughs> if you're not there, the words are on the screen. Verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Says the word of the Lord. Let's begin with the word of prayer and then we'll dive into our text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I again just thank you for this opportunity to stand before your people and declare, thus saith the Lord. God, I pray that as we study this text this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, that you would convict us and challenge us, that we would be able to learn more about your heart through this passage, learn more about your son, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would just hide me behind the cross, that Jesus would be big, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. Lord, I just pray for unction as I preach, Lord, that you would allow me to say what you want for me to say and nothing more. Lord, we love you and thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so just by a show of hands, is anybody in here familiar with what a turn signal is? All right, anybody familiar with what a turn signal is? I mean, I, I, just, I just wanted to ask because, you know, when you, when you get on the road and you start to drive, it's not as obvious that people know what their turn signal is, right? So, so for those of you that don't know what it is, your turn signal, it's this lever that is built into your car, right? And so what happens is when you push that lever up, your car does this thing where the, the headlights, the taillights begin to blink. And they blink to indicate to the people around you that you are going to be moving to the right, all right? But, but, but wait, if you hit it down, the left starts to blink, all right? So, so these turn signals are put on our car to help indicate and let the people around us know which direction we plan on going. You know, they're actually pretty helpful when you're driving, at least most of the time. This week, I've had some really weird experiences. This week, it's been at least three times that I noticed this week when I was driving behind a car and we would come to a 
stop sign or we would come to a traffic light and the car in front of me put his turn signal on. Praise God, right? But then if they put their right turn signal on, they turn left. <laughs> I'm telling you, it happened three times this week, right? I, I mean, I was, I, was, I was confused. I was like, you know, I have this expectation in my mind. You know, that if you put your right indicator on, that means you're going right. You put your left on, that means you're going left. The first time, I was just like, that's kind of odd. The second time, I was like, okay, what in the world is going on? And the third time, I just was, I don't know, I just had to throw my hands up the third time, right? And the reason I tell you this, though, is because I believe the same is true about the birth of Jesus. So as we look at the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, there was an expectation of what his arrival would look like. You know, there was an expectation that Jesus, God from heaven, would come down as the Messiah and he would establish this throne, that he would be born in a palace probably, but rather as we look at the birth of Jesus, we see that Jesus was born in a barn. You know, but the meek and modest arrival of God the Son and the Son of God did not begin in Bethlehem, but rather about 90 miles away in the small town of Nazareth. And as we look at our text this morning, what we're going to find is that Jesus's unlikely beginning did not begin in a manger, but rather in the womb of a young girl named Mary. And as we look at this text, I believe what we'll learn is how so often it is not the well-to-do the high and mighty, the powerful and prestigious on which God bestows his grace and his favor, but rather the obscure and unlikely. I want you to understand before I begin that contrary to what many TV preachers would lead you to believe, the favor of God is not merely material blessing. Listen, the favor of God is not just health, wealth, and prosperity, but rather the favor of God is better put as divine grace, divine grace. One could say that God's favor is demonstrated delight. Listen, when we favor someone, we want to be with him or her. We delight in them. We connect with them in a way that we may not connect with everyone else. And in verses 46 to 55, this morning, ultimately what I believe we find is Mary singing praises to God for showing favor on the lowly. As Mary lifts her voice in a hymn of praise, the first thing that we see this morning is what God did for Mary. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. I want to just stop here for a second to try to help you and rebut a heretical view of Mary. There is a Catholic dogma that Mary, as the mother of her Redeemer, was free from sin. It's what is known as the Immaculate Conception. It's the belief that in order to carry and birth the baby Jesus, that Mary at her own birth was void of, 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 of sin nature, that Mary also was sinless. But as we look at this text here in 
verse 47, Mary says that her spirit rejoices in God, my what? Savior. Listen, if you are sinless, you are not in need of saving. Yet Mary needed a Savior just like the rest of us. Look at verse 48. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So as Mary begins this, this song of praise this morning, this song magnifying the Lord, what we find is that she is praising God for regarding the lowly state of his maidservant. To understand what Mary is speaking of, we have, we got to go back to verse 26. In verse 26, we see the angel Gabriel come to Mary and announce the birth of Christ. And I'm just going to take some time. I'm going to read from verse 26 to verse 35 for us. Verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which we looked at last week, the angel Gabriel, the same angel that came to Zacharias and told him about the birth of John the Baptist, was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, therefore also that the Holy One who is to be born, will be called the Son of God. So as we read these nine or so verses in this passage, I believe that it's, it's undeniable that the favor of God was in and on the life of Mary. You know, but as we then move back to verse 46 through verse 55, what is interesting is that Mary does not just say, I praise God for his favor. But rather, as you look at Mary's song, Mary says, I praise God for his favor despite my insignificance. Listen, God did not choose an influential, powerful queen in an Egyptian palace, but rather, as we look at the one that God would choose to bear his son, he chose a rather poor, probably unlearned peasant girl from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a rural small town in the region of Galilee. Nazareth was isolated. It was off the beaten path. It was one of those places that that the only reason you went there was because you had a reason to be there. Like, Like you only went to Nazareth if you had business in Nazareth. It was a small town. Historians estimate that around the time of Jesus that Nazareth was home to about 300 people. Now when I was 
studying the text, I was trying to look at little townships around us that maybe be close to Nazareth to kind of give you an idea. But the truth of the matter is, even the smallest of towns around us is big in comparison to this little town of Nazareth. Listen, Mary didn't grow up in a big city high rise. Mary didn't grow up in a gated community. Mary didn't grow up in a country club. Mary didn't grow up at the end of a cul-de-sac, but rather Mary was from a small ghetto town. This was also the place where Jesus would be raised. In John 1, Philip comes to Nathaniel and tells Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel looks back at Phillips, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was that kind of town that when they heard that the Messiah had come from this little small town, there, there was doubt in their mind. Like, there, there's no way that, that, that the Messiah would come from a place like that. Yet the place where nothing good comes from became the place where everything good depended on. So Mary says, thank you, God, for choosing me despite my background. But not only was Mary of low esteem, but Mary was also of low status. Mary was a young teenage girl. If Mary didn't have anything to offer God materially because of the circumstances of her home and the place she grew up, she definitely did not have anything to offer God when it came to maturity-wise. Luke tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. That, that, that word betrothed, betrothment is much like an engagement today, but a little bit more rigid, all right? So, so during a betrothment, it would usually be about a year-long period where, where technically the husband and the wife were married. The only way to break a betrothment was through a divorce, but during this, this period of betrothment, the husband and wife would not live together. They would not sleep together until the actual marriage ceremony. This is why the angel Gabriel, I'm sorry, this is why Luke signifies that Mary is a virgin. But get this, the average age of betrothment during the days of Jesus was 12 to 14 years old. 12 to 14 years old. Listen, Mary was chosen by God, to bear his son as a young teenage girl. You know, this is such a far concept from our society and where we're at right now that it's kind of even hard to grasp. I mean, I mean, just think about it. Can you imagine a 14-year-old girl being responsible for raising the son of God? Not even just being responsible, but can you imagine a 14-year-old girl being purposefully chosen? Listen, God could have chosen anybody that he wanted to. Yet he purposefully and sovereignly chose Mary. Yet God regarded the lowly state of Mary. And she chose him as the mother of the Messiah. In verse 49, after she says, he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, Mary then says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So God had looked upon the lowly with favor, the one who was undeserving, the one who was unworthy, the one that didn't have a whole lot to offer God. And according to his sovereign will, chose and blessed 
the unlikely in order to accomplish his purposes. Or simply said, God in his glorious power with his matchless wisdom chose a teenage virgin girl from the ghetto to birth his own son, Jesus Christ. Great things. He has done great things. You know, and even as we look at the the conception of Christ um, in, in the virgin Mary. You know, while this miraculous conception may leave one a little skeptical, you know, how is God able to, to, to impregnate, to, to bring a baby in the, in the womb of a virgin? Can I suggest to you that if God can speak the heavens and the earth into existence, listen, if God can take dust from the ground and breathe life into Adam, then God can create life in the womb of a virgin. God had taken this humble maidservant, this young girl of low reputation, this young girl of low esteem, and chose her to bring forth the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You know, as I look at this, I'm just reminded that God is not conformed to social norms. Listen, God is not formed to society's traditions or society's values. In Isaiah 55, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. He says, neither my ways are your ways. Listen, society would lead us to believe that God would exalt and lift up the high and mighty. That God would look with favor on those that can offer much to him, those with power, those with influence, those with prestige, those with lots of money. Yet, like so many other things, as we go through the pages of Scripture, what we find is the very opposite. You know, I can't help but wonder. It's just just backwards. It's countercultural. And I can't help but wonder, why would God purposefully choose the lowly. Why would he choose a young teenage girl from little old Nazareth? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He says God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And then in verse 30, Paul says, he who glories, let him glory in God. God exalts the lowly to glorify himself. Listen, God doesn't lift up the lowly to bring the lowly glory, but rather to show a watching world that in our weakness, he is strong. So in verses 46 to 49, Mary praises and glorifies God for exchanging her lowly estate for his favor. But then as you continue into verse 50, I think so as to not make you believe that Mary alone is the recipient of this amazing grace that God has to offer. Mary goes from saying what God has done for her to now talking about what God can do for you. Listen, church, in the upside-down, inside-out economy of God's kingdom, favor is bestowed on all those who are lowly. God delights in those who with humble faith put aside their pride and arrogance. Listen, God does not delight in strength. God does not delight in accolades. God does not delight in prominence. God does not delight in prowess. In Psalms 147, the Bible says, he does not delight in the strength of the horse. 
It says he takes no pleasure in the legs of a man, but rather, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. Or can I say it to you like this this morning? God delights in those who delight in him. Look at verse 50 with me. Verse 50 said his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. That encompasses all. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Mary saw the Lord turning everything upside down. The weak dethrone the mighty. The humble scatter the proud. The nobodies are exalted. The hungry are filled and the rich end up poor. And again, I just tell you that the grace of God and the methods of God are contrary to the thoughts and the ways in the, of this world's system. Listen, as, as, as I try to help you explain and help you to see this, this exaltation of the lowly, I, I hope that you're picking up what I'm trying to set down. I'm, what I'm trying to tell you all this morning is what Peter says, that God resists the proud but gives grace. He gives favor to the humble. You know, this is one of the paradoxes of the Christian life, that when you go low, God will raise you up high. Listen, but when you set up high, then God will bring you down low. Jesus says in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, let this be a word of encouragement this morning for those of you who are weary of toiling in inconspicuous and unseen ways, who feel underappreciated and overlooked. Be encouraged in knowing that when it seems as if nobody notices that God notices and he will exalt you. In due time, God shows favor to those who serve him, not for their platform, those who serve him, not for their name, but rather God shows favor on those who serve them for his glory and his name. Listen, God delights in those who worship him. God delights in those who give to him. God delights in those who serve him, not to be seen by man, but rather to be seen by God. God shows favor on the lowly. But before I move on so as to not create self-deprecating Christians, I want to submit to you this morning that the favor of God does not come by humility alone. You see, as you look at the life of Mary, as you look at the example of so many others in the Bible who are shown favor from Moses to Daniel to David to Ruth, what we find is that their humility coexisted with, it was accompanied by faith. I think the essence of Mary's faith, you know, as we look at this this passage, there's a lot of things that exemplify the faith of Mary. If you have a cross-reference Bible and you look at verses 46 through 55, one thing you might notice is that over and over and over again, Mary references Old Testament scripture. 
Listen, Mary was faithful. Mary believed God. Mary trusted God. Mary knew God. But I I think really just the essence, if you want to take the faith of Mary and wrap it all up in one verse, I think that you can look at verse 38. Look at verse 38 with me. Verse 38 comes after the angel Gabriel has pronounced this miraculous baby, this, this Messiah baby to Mary. And Mary says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Humility. Humbleness. Then she says, let it be to me according to your word, faith. Mary tells Gabriel, I am here to serve God. So let him do with my life what he desires. (laughs) I am here to serve God. So let him do with my life what he desires. Listen, Mary could have said, but Joseph. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. I imagine the thoughts going through Mary's head. She has to explain to her husband that she is with child, yet she hasn't slept with anyone. Mary could have said, but my family She would have had to explain the exact same thing to them and face the disgrace of her family. And not only that, but she would have had to face the disgrace of her community. Listen, she already lives in a small town. Everybody would have been talking about this this, this woman that is betrothed and yet impregnated and is claiming that she is miraculously pregnant. Listen, Mary could have said, but I'm young, Lord. Lord, Lord, there's nothing I can offer. I I can't bear that responsibility of, of raising your son She could have said, but I'm poor. She could have said, Lord, I don't have the resources. I don't have the influence to give the baby Jesus what he deserves. But as we look at the response of Mary, what Mary says is, here I am, Lord. Mary was willing to bear the disgrace in order to become God's instrument of grace. Mary was facing the unknown. Mary was facing the uncertain. She didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't know how people would react. But instead of insisting upon answers, Mary had faith. Mary had faith. Listen, faith isn't knowing what is going to happen. Faith is choosing to trust God with an uncertain future, knowing that things will work out. We see what God has done for Mary. He did mighty things for her despite her lowly state. We see what God will do for us, giving grace to the humble. And then lastly, we see what God did for Israel. Look at verse 54 with me. Verse 54 says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. If you were here last week as we looked at Zechariah's song of praise, you may notice that Mary's last two verses sound much like his. That God had kept this promise to Abraham. That God has kept this this promise that, that he gave to the fathers. Mary notes that God remembers his mercy through the birth of Jesus Christ. Listen to verses 54 to verse 55. Mary is praising God because she recognizes that this child which she bears is the promised Messiah, that he is the deliverer, that he is the promised Savior of Abraham. 
the mercy promised to Israel. Listen, so in case you were just wondering as you listened to the radio this week, Mary knew. Mary knew exactly who Jesus was. Even before his birth, Jesus was recognized as Lord, the Messiah of God. When you go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew begins by sharing another account of the angel Gabriel going to somebody. And this person is Joseph. And as the angel Gabriel goes to Joseph and tells Joseph about this baby, which his wife is going to bear, Gabriel says to Joseph, he shall save his people from their sins. This baby shall save his people from their sins. Listen, church, if you are here this morning and you hear about the favor of God that was placed on Mary and you are wondering and you're wrestling with how do I get such favor? How can I get God's favor? The most basic answer for you is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, favor is divine grace. Listen, if you have trusted in Christ and you have been saved by grace through faith, then you know the favor of God. You know, faith without humility leads to prideful arrogance. Faith without humility, without recognizing the depravity of my sin and how wicked I am, leads me to believe that I am good enough to earn my way to God. Humility without faith leads to self-pity. When I know I'm messed up, (laughs) when I know that I am deserving of God's wrath and condemnation, yet I lack faith that God is able to forgive me, that God is able to have mercy on me, it leads to self-pity because I have no hope of God's rescue and grace. Listen, church, but faith with humility leads to God's favor. Humility of recognizing my position before God. Humility with recognizing that I have nothing to offer, yet faith in believing that Christ is all I need. Faith in believing that Christ already paid the price for my sin and believing on the Son of God then brings favor on my life as I can be made right with God. You know, the truth of the matter is we are all highly favored in Christ Jesus. You know, there's many reasons that God chooses to save us. God chooses to save us to bring glory to himself. He chooses to save us, to appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty. But I believe one of the sweetest reasons that God saves us is because he is fond of us. Listen, because we were made in his image, we were created for fellowship with God. Listen, God likes having you around. Listen, in God's eyes, you are the best thing since sliced bread. Listen, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. Listen, God sends you flowers every spring. He causes the sun to rise every morning. He'll listen to you anytime you want to talk. And he could have chose to live anywhere in the universe, but he chose your hearts. Favor. Favor. 
And as I close this morning, I want to I give us two things that we need to do in response to Mary's song. The first thing I want us to recognize is that God is madly in love with you. Listen, recognize that God has already bestowed favor on you by sending his son to die on the cross. Recognize that God wants a relationship with you, that God wants you to come into his family. And then the second I want us, thing I want us to do this morning is to glorify God because of his favor. Glorify God because of his favor. You might have noticed that I kind of skipped through verse 46 and verse 47 because I wanted to save it for the end. As you look at verse 46 and verse 47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. In these two opening verses, you get a glimpse into the, the gratitude of Mary's heart. I mean, just, just, just meditate on those two verses as you come off this account where the angel Gabriel has came to Mary and says, Mary, you have been shown favor. You are highly favored. You are going to bear the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Mary's response, just, just, just think about it. Just, just, I want you to just feel it the way that Mary felt it as she gets this great news. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's soul and Mary's spirit speak to the, the innermost being of her person. It's that feeling deep in her stomach that she can't help but sing praises to God because of how good he has been to her. It's that feeling deep down where she can't help but exalt the name of God because of the favor that he has shown on her, because of his grace that he has bestowed. So Mary has a high view of God. She is overwhelmed by his love. She is overwhelmed by his kindness. She is overwhelmed by his mercy and his grace that he has given to her. Listen, and just as I close, I, I just want to tell you that I believe that this should be the response of all of us to God's favor. A sense of awe, a sense of wonder at how good God just has been to each and every one of us. You know, I want to ask you the question this morning. When was the last time you just stopped and praised God from the deepest parts of your soul? So I want to help some of you here this morning. If you have trouble magnifying God, if you have trouble rejoicing in God as your Savior, if you find it hard to be overwhelmed by the goodness and mercy of God, can I suggest to you this morning that despite your deepest hurts, despite your greatest loss, despite the troubles of your circumstances, that the cross of Christ is enough to make you sing like Mary. Listen, if you want to know how much God favors you, listen, if you want to know how much God delights in you, oh, if you want to know how much God loves you, Listen, don't look at your bank account, don't look at your health, don't look at your family, don't look at your circumstances, but rather look at the cross. Amen. On the cross, God regarded the lowly state of our humanity. Listen, on the cross, Christ lived a sinless and perfect life, yet died a scandalous death in our place. He was pierced in his side. He had hands and nails stuck into his hands and his feet. He had a crown of thorn placed on his head. Listen, he bore the wrath of God on our 
behalf. We had nothing to offer, yet he showed his favor on us by dying for the sins of the world so that we could be called blessed. You know, the sad truth is, though, that for some, Christ will not become all that you need until Christ is all that you have. Listen, church, Jesus is all sufficient. Jesus is all satisfying. Jesus is more than we ever deserve. Therefore, our soul should magnify the Lord. Heads bow and eyes closed. So if you are here this morning and you have never accepted the gift of God that is offered to you through Christ, I want to encourage you. I want to I want to beg of you, plead with you to do so this morning. Listen, Christ has done the hard work. Christ paid the price on the cross for your sins that once separated from God, you can now be brought back into a relationship with a holy, loving Father. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have never done that, heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want you to slip your hand up. I don't want to embarrass you. I want to pray for you. And I want to try to help you and show you what the Bible says about how you can know that heaven is your home and Christ is your Savior. Just slip your hand up if that's you. Amen. Listen, and then as we pray this morning, for those of us that know Christ as Savior, I want to just take a few minutes and just magnify the Lord. Praise God for how good He has been to us. Listen, you know, this Christmas season, it's supposed to be a time of thanksgiving, time of remembering what God has done and remembering just how good he's been through sending his son. And, you know, if you never take time any other time to just thank him for that, rejoice in him for that. I want to urge you to do that this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for your mercy, your goodness, your grace. Lord, I thank you for each and every person you brought here this morning, God. God, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, God, that we would never fail to forget how wretched and lost we were, how so undeserving of grace we are, and how good you have been to us, God. God, I pray that even as we sing this last song this morning, that it will be sung with a song of, with a, with a voice of thankfulness, a heart of gratitude, Lord, for all that you've done. Lord, we love you. Thank you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.